Straight Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Hello and welcome. Um, it's a pleasure to be on the show again today, but this time I'm missing a friend of mine. Rick's off on uh, a retreat without any technology. So you have Af Malhotra here, the co-creator of STL, Straight Talk Live, and I'm the co-founder of Growth Enabler. I have a wonderful guest today uh, that I'd like to introduce you to. And um, uh, this is someone who um, I've just got to meet recently. I got introduced to Gotham recently. And one of the reasons we're so excited to have uh, Gotham on the show is because he, uh, apart from being a fantastic author, uh, a fellow at Harvard Kennedy, um, an assistant professor at Harvard Business School, uh, also a, an entrepreneur and a consultant who's advised, um, you know, um, the government, uh, government leaders, naval intelligence, you name it. Um, Gotham is touching on a, on a point and an issue that is bothering many of us in, in the environment we live in today. And he's been studying and investigating ways in which uh, leaders um, can start to build uh, tooling or tools and methodologies and, and change their thinking process around how to deal with uh, high stress, pricey situations. Uh, I've got a lot to, to discuss with Gotham today, um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna welcome you on the show, Gotham Mukunda. Thank you for taking this time. I know um, the entire sort of um, STL audience and crew is really, really excited about today's show. So my first question um, is, uh, before we go into the thick of it, is tell us, tell us about how you got here, because I know you are also the podcast lead for NASDAQ. Um, you have a very, very interesting history and we love personal stories. So let's take a few minutes talking about you and your background and then we'll go into the core of, of what you've got to share with us today. Sure, Af, no, it's my, it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me here. It's been, it's been great getting to know you the last few weeks, and I've been really looking forward to this. Mm -hmm. So the short version for me is I, I, I often quip that my life's ambition is to have the world's most confusing resume, and I'm most of the way there. Um, and so that, that what brought me here is, is you know, not a logical path, but it's been an interesting one. Um, so I was, uh, after college, I worked at McKinsey for a while and, and, and worked on uh, consulting in a bunch of areas, but particularly the pharmaceutical sector. And then from there, I did of all things, went and did a PhD in political science, where I split my time half between working on leadership issues and half between half on innovation issues. And so my right. work on innovation got me the, uh, and I ended up becoming sort of getting adopted by Clayton Christensen, who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma. And he became my mentor for a very, very long time. He was a great, great man. And he suggested I join Harvard Business School, uh, which actually ended up bringing me on board, not because of my work on innovation, but because of my work on leadership where I wrote my first book. And I spent seven years at Harvard Business School as a professor there, teaching leadership there. And then and two years at Schwarzman College in Tsinghua University outside Beijing, where I created the leadership program for the Schwarzman Scholars and taught there for two years, taught there uh, twice for the first yeah. two cohorts. Um, then ended up going to the Kennedy School. I'm a political scientist by training and the Kennedy School made, you know, is sort of the government work has always been close to my heart. While there was a founder on a medical devices company that, uh, that is, is sort of up and running now and we were going into clinical trials, finished my second book and did a bunch of the work you're talking about, some sort of advisory work for the, for, the, for the Defense Department, things like that. And, uh, and so have been doing right now, have, you know, the second book is finished and sort of, you know, coming out, coming out early next year. I'm thinking about, oddly enough, thinking about the next three all at once, which is sort of the, but, but once you get, I find, once you get an idea, the only way to get it out of your head is to write it. And so if you have three ideas, suddenly you're, you, 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 you've gone from having to work on one book to three at the same time, uh, which will be, which will be an interesting experience. I've never done that before. <laughs> and, uh, and do it. And with NASDAQ is they, that's been a blast. Uh, they approached, so the backstory there is way back in graduate school, I started organizing dinners for friends of mine in Boston. Mm -hmm. And we just go out and get steak or something like that. And I made it a goal to my, for myself to be that I would put together a group of people who would leave saying, we have never met, I would never have met this combination of people anywhere else on earth. That was my goal. Right. And I would say the only thing that's really special about me is I have a, is I have a very diverse set of friends. So, you know, I would put together, this is, you know, this isn't, this is like literally one dinner where you would have, you know, a professor of political science next to a personal trainer, next to a billionaire venture, cap venture capitalist, next to the general manager of a nightclub, next to a guy who sold 15 million albums as a rock star. 
Yeah. Um, and literally, the idea was, you know, that you'd find something that these people would all have to talk about, even if they themselves didn't know what they had to talk about, and mm-hmm. let them figure it out over the course of the dinner. And you would just have the most fascinating conversation, you know, conversations you'd never ima- never anticipate having, ones that are sort of out of the blue, but that go places you'd never... So, one, for example, my favorite one um, was we had a, a choreographer, a sort of a, a choreographer, um, Bill Forsythe, like this legendary, one of the great, world's great choreographers. And seated next to him was a really good friend of mine who competes is in bodybuilding tournaments. And I was like, what could they talk about? But my friend starts talking to him about the posing routines that bodybuilders do. And Bill looks at a video of it and then starts interpreting those posing routines the way a choreographer would. Right. And starts talking him through how this is all about information and different ways of, t- of demonstrating the things. And we're, you know, like, this is not something I ever would have thought was even vaguely interesting. And instead, it turned into one of the most fascinating discussions I've ever sat in on, right? To hear this guy think about the world and explain it this way. And it ends with him saying, hey, before your next contest, give me a call. I will choreograph your routine. Yeah. Um, and okay. so that, I, you know, so NASDAQ happened to be talking to me about other things. And I told them the story, this story and a few others. And I think we're like, that's what we want for our, we want a podcast where you can replicate that experience. We want people to sit, to ha- hear conversations between people you would never expect to be in the same room and talk about, and, and talk about that. So this, so the one that we, we dropped on Tuesday is between a dear friend of mine who is a professor, Beth Altringer, who's a, who is a, teaches at the Harvard School of Engineering and is a, works on creativity and innovation issues. And is one of these people who just is too talented for any human being to really believe, right? So she's, you know, both one of the best, you know, has won prizes as one of the best tech professors at Harvard, has also had gallery showings of her art and won major wine tasting competitions, right? And has created an app for, yeah. uh, for that's called Sheffley, uh, and paired her with the head of European art for the Boston's Museum of Fine Arts, talking about art and creativity and that, and, and, and how these things go together and interact with technology. Uh, yeah. Next week will be Andrew Nuyi, the former CEO of Pepsi, the le- sort of this legendary CEO who took that whole company and pivoted it towards uh, towards healthier healthy foods, right away from sugar and salt. Yeah. Talking with uh, my dear friend and former student Everett Spain, who is the head of leadership development at West Point, the United States Military Academy, talking about ethical leadership and and character, and so and I mean that shows largely motivated by the fact that both Indra and I think of Everett as the most admirable human being we've ever met. So we both want him to like talk about how, not just, you know, everyone, everyone would like blush and be upset with me because he, he like, he's the most humble person you've ever met, but he would never mm-hmm. want to be talked about. But like, this is how we want to talk about how do you, how does Everett try to create char- leaders who have the sort of character that Everett embodies? Yeah. Um, and so I'll, I'll say, you know, he's also, he was also uh, the, uh, he was also the person at the Boston Marathon bombing who saved several people's lives there. And so he, and so he, we, you know, we, we want to understand how is it that someone can be that kind of person? And yeah. so he'll be talking. And so we, we get it. And he's, um, you know, so because he was my very, 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 you know, one of my best friends in the world, he was sort of willing to talk about it, which he has not, is not under any other circumstances. And so we're really looking forward to the chance to have those kinds of explorations um, yeah. in a way that I hope, you know, I would say that my, my goal is really simple. I, I say that my, and this goes into my book now where we're going next is I think there's a difference between good leadership and great leadership. And it's not a difference in degree. It's a difference in kind, right? So good leadership is someone who's competent. They know what they're doing. And, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not talking down on good leadership. Leadership is hard. And, you know, leading large, orga- le- leading large organizations is incredibly hard. If you ever spend time, you know, t- so I got the chance, for example, to shadow the CEO of Volkswagen after the diesel emission scandal. Uh, yeah. And one of the things, the thi- I should say, the biggest thing I learned about from this is how unbelievably complicated his job was, right? That, that, that the, the scale of the processing that he had to do on a daily basis was mind-blowing to me. Mm-hmm. But the difference between, but good leadership is competent. Great leadership is a lot more than that, right? It is absolutely competent. There's a, there's, there's a skill component involved. But it's also someone who has the insight to see what the right thing to do is even mm-hmm. when other people don't, right? When you can look through the tangle of conflicting information that is the, what faces the leaders at any moment, particularly in a crisis. And then the third component is they, people who have the courage to do it even when it's hard, right. even when the situation pushes back against them. So my goal for my podcast, but actually no, it's not just my goal for the podcast, it's my goal for every for all the work I have ever done, right? Is, 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 it's just, there are three things. I wanna help people either have the knowledge they need right? To, to understand the situation or, and have that kind of insight, the skill set to execute successfully when they have it, yeah. and the courage to do the right thing 
even when the situation is making it difficult for them to do so. Yeah, yeah, perfect. What a fa fantastic entry and opening there, um, Gotham. Thank you for that. There's a lot to talk about, and I think we, we've got a nice little segue into the first part of the conversation, which, um, which I know a lot of people are dying to ask you this question, including myself. What, when you think about crisis situations, and I know you, this is, you're going to unpack this in a, in, a, in a moment, when you think about what's going on with biosecurity, you think about what's going on with COVID right now as a pandemic, we've been debating this over 43 episodes now in different shapes and forms and, and sizes. Uh, tell us, based on your research and, and your insights, and you've referred to a few incredible people as part of the, the, the opening, uh, is, there, is there a formulaic approach to distinguishing an individual who you believe is ready to deal with the crisis? We'll call them leaders for now. Uh, leaders come in different sizes as well. You, know, you don't always have to be called a leader. You don't need a job title as a leader. You can have a, a leader without um, formal authority. Right? And there are loads of yeah. leaders with formal authority. Um, many of us are, in fact, in what we do. So is, there a, is, is it formulaic? Is there a certain um, set of attributes, certain set of traits? Um, you talked about knowledge and skills and courage. You're absolutely going to be touching on that. Walk us through what you've picked up as being the sort of recipe, uh, if you will, of a leader who can deal with crisis. So there's no formula because inherent in the definition of, of crisis, right, is I would say that there, it's, you know, it's stakes, ambiguity, and time pressure, that those are the three things that sort of, sort of characterize every real crisis, right? So it's the stakes are high. If the stakes yeah. are low, then you don't care, right? It's not a crisis because it doesn't matter. Uh, ambiguity, because either because, because the situation has changed or because information is insufficient, you, you know, right, the right path, the right path of action is not clear. Yeah. Right. And in fact, maybe changing constantly as you're updating based on new information. And we'll talk about that yeah. some more, I'm sure. Yeah. Right. And then time pressure. Right. If you have forever to make your choices, you can just push them off. And the, sen the sense of this is actually a crisis is not there. But the combination of those three means that you can't have a formula because a crisis by definition is different. If mm -hmm. it's what you've always been facing, you know, if it's what your formula is designed for, then it's not a crisis. Yeah. That being said, I think both my own experience and the research on leadership suggests that there are a few things that hold, that sort of distinguish crisis leaders precisely because they are the traits that enable successfully dealing with high stakes, high ambiguity, and short and low amounts of time. Right. Um, the, the first one of those that you can quantify, um, the, 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 the most important is not quantifiable. Let's start with the quantify, quantifiable ones. The first one that you can quantify is you would simply call it um, is cognitive complexity. It's the ability to handle complicated, com complicated concepts and in their interactions in real time. So the person who did the best, uh, the most research on this is the legendary psychologist named Dean Simonton, right? He's out mm -hmm. in California, who's written, you know, like he, he's written sort of book after book on the origins of genius and creativity and sort of brilliance. And, you know, like, like, you know, he's one of these people where you look up his CV and you're like, this must be four people, right? Because no one can publish this many things. It's just not possible. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and so one thing that, you know, so he's demonstrated over and over again that the hallmark of successful leaders in the presidency, for example, he calls it intellectual brilliance. And it's not exactly, it's not the same thing as IQ, right? It's related to IQ, but it's different in that it also includes characteristics like intellectual openness to experience, right? Curiosity, um, you know, sort of a broad, broad spectrum of tastes and interests, because all of these things suggest someone who is able to handle complicated, complex issues. Right. One of his fascinating pieces of research, for example, is that he looks at generals in land battles and he found that, and you were able to measure cognitive complexity by looking at people's writing. So what did, you know, what did they write in the day before? And you can actually use that to score cognitive complexity um, with a very high degree of accuracy. As in, as in the, my handwriting? Uh, not your handwriting, what you say. The way I write. The way you write, right. It's what's the grammar, what's the level of concepts you engage with, right? What's the way you do it? Um, if you ever get a chance, uh, so John Keegan, the great, the late great British military historian, wrote a book, The Mask of Command, and he talks in it about the Battle of, uh, about the Battle of Water, uh, the Duke of Wellington at Waterloo. Yeah. And he, he actually transcribes a note that the Duke of Wellington wrote to one of his subordinates, right, with commands, and he points out that, he, that, that Wellington wrote this while people were shooting at him, right? So it is, it is like impossible to imagine a moment of greater crisis than the fate of Europe being decided while people are in the middle of this battle. Um, and as he says, like, if you read it, it is perfectly clear, right? Like, like it is impossible to misunderstand. 
it uses, I think, six different tenses. I was like, I'm not, I didn't even know there were six different English tenses, right? Like, like it uses six different English tenses. It is, you know, it is this, it is a paragraph, but you could not spend a week workshopping it and get a better order, right? Like, like, and that's what he was able to do on the fly. Yeah. Um, so that you can actually measure people's cognitive complexity like that with a great degree of success. Yeah. And, is that, can I interrupt for a second? Is that, sure. in, in other words, there is chaos going on around you. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be your kids running around and going nuts in a real life situation, but you're mindful and focused on what it is you're doing there and you're detached. In some way you find yourself being detached from the chaos in, you know, in the immediate situation around you. Uh, I, suspect, I suspect that that is a huge component of the ability to do that, right? Like, like you know, I, I, I sincerely doubt that the Duke of Wellington may have meditated, uh, but the ability to have that kind of distance from your environment really? is extraordinarily powerful. I mean, he, he, right. I mean, he seems to have been born with ice water in his, in his veins instead of blood, right? Like, like he just doesn't, he, he seems to have been congenitally unable to be rattled. Right. Most of us are not like that, so we have to cultivate that ability. And and you'll see in great generals, in particular, there's a uh, my, my 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 professor Barry Posen used to say there's a there's a callous like a, a toughness, right? They have thick skin. They just mm. don't get up. You know, they're they're very you know, they they don't get upset in this kind of environment because they can't afford to be because that kind of emotion inhibits their ability to think clearly. Sure. Um, so anyway, so Simonton's research found that the cognitive complexity of the generals involved predicted victory in battle better than any other factor, including the number of troops on either side. Right. Right. So there's this strike and he finds he finds this characteristic in profession after profession, in domain after domain, in, you know, in, in art, in everything from artists to presidents of the United States. Mm. And so the first one is that like you want, you know, you want people who are smart, but they're more than smart, right? They're interesting thinkers. They're able, because um, and partly I think because that the the essence of crisis, again, because it's ambiguity, means you're dealing with stuff that's different, mm-hmm. right? So if you're dealing with stuff that's different and you have someone who is, who's, who's, who is, its background is narrow, right? So, so the, the, then they, they often will lack the breath that allows them to handle this very different environment. One mm-hmm. of the things that we, one of the things that, we, you know, I, I always say in every semester when I teach students, I always say that, you know, evolution teaches us one thing, that what survives is not the biggest or the strongest or the fastest or the, or the smartest. It's definitely not the smartest. Mm. It's the most adaptable, right? Like, like what, what survives is what's most adaptable. And if you, if you are perfectly optimized to an environment, right? If every single thing you do is ideal for one particular environment, then you will succeed brilliantly in that environment, but you're likely not adaptable because yeah. you are, you are optimized to that one environment. So the first, this, 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 this first one, there's this complexity, this breath, that's key. The second, as I talked about, is this ability, uh, what you, you said so eloquently, right? Is this ability to have distance in the moment, right? So, um, you know, Kipling said, right? If you can keep your head, well, all about you are losing theirs. Um, that ability to face the storm of events and yet maintain your equanimity is extraordinarily important, right? Is this the, the sense of like, how do, I, how do I not do that? How do I not get lost in the moment? Um, so Dwight Eisenhower, uh, extra, you know, is this, we, you know, I would say that Eisenhower is the most underrated American of the 20th century, right? That, mm-hmm. that's, that started, that's changed recently because people have started to appreciate just how extraordinarily gifted he really was. But for a long time, people didn't give him cre- the credit that he deserved. For, and so Eisenhower used, has, had a very simple two by two writes that that even gets it even gets talked about by Stephen Covey in the habits of highly effective people um mm. but Eisen, this is the Eisenhower matrix and if you haven't heard about it right he said you you divide everything by urgent and important yeah. right and he says that things that are urgent and important you deal now and I deal with right things that are not urgent and not important just ignore like they, like they're you know they're not urgent and they're not important you don't have to worry about it mm. and he and you know there's things that are important but not urgent you would delegate right Things that are th- things that are urgent but not important, you would you know that that also you would task out right. The things that are urgent but not that important but not urgent, you calendar. Things that are ur- things that are urgent but not important, you delegate right. And like and he was very clear into this. And I say that you know if he could beat the Nazis using this, you can use this too. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear that the reason Eisenhower did this was he it was his way of making sure that in the you know the turmoil of D Day or the Battle of the Bulge, he was not overwhelmed. By events, right? He could, he could be like, this is what we're going to handle at this moment in time. This is what matters. And this is how I'm going to focus on it. So that's a key one. Yeah. So and this then, is, mm-hmm. I just want to play that back. So when you talk about distance 
in the moment. I love the way you put that. And the impact urgency matrix is a powerful one, actually, for those who haven't used something as, as straightforward as, as this in their lives. It's so powerful. There's one bit I will add, I'll throw some color into it. Uh, during my corporate days um, in the world of selling and selling into the CEO, um, I sort of added a, a little bit of innovation to it. And I put in risk into the uh, impact urgency um, matrix. I called it the RUR matrix because the risk was when you're mapping out your decisions, the, sh the size of the bubble inside the quadrant is uh, the level of risk. Yeah. And yeah. so it gives you that additional level of dimension or that additional level of detail, should I say, that allows you to make inform an informed call, but it's a very powerful tool. So thank you for sharing Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, sure. And, and so, I mean, the final one is, go ahead. No, you're saying that, yeah, we're waiting for the yeah. final one. It's, it's, it's a, and it's, it's harder to quantify, but it matters, right? Is, is the attitude mm -hmm. of wisdom. Right. And with this, this idea that you have this, that, and we say that, that the best leaders are wise people, of mm. course. And, you know, wisdom is so nebulous. It's hard to define. What I would say that more than anything else is, um, is a learning orientation is the way I would think about that. And the way I think about this is um, one of the most depressing things you can learn about people that I, that I learned when you, I, you learn, when you learn about psychology is that the smarter someone is, the less likely it becomes that new information will change their mind, mm -hmm. right? Now, this is like one of these things where you, when you really think about it, it gets really worrying, really, right? Because, and so why is that? And so the answer is that the smarter someone is, the more able they are to make up new, to make up stories that explain why this new information does not mean that they are wrong. Yeah. So, so, right. So the, 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 I tell my students so often that they make fun of me about it, right? That the most powerful force in the universe is the desire to believe what you want to believe. That there is, you know, um, yeah, Tom Clancy was, you know, not a very quotable author, but he had one line I never forget, which is that men wed their ideas more faithfully than their wives, right? <laughs> and I'm like, that this is, this is exactly like that human beings would rather, you know, they would rather, not all humans, but a, hum, a shocking number of people would rather fail than, than ever admit that they were wrong. And so this ability that, you know, the, I, I think the, the, the essence of the learning orientation, right? The point of learning is that it is growth. It is change. If you are not changing, you are not learning. The yeah. essence of this learning orientation is the ability to sort of constantly be scanning the world, looking for information that you, that will change your, that will change your priors. Mm. Um, there's a wonderful organizational behavior article that I'm, I'm now like, I, like I'm, I'm, I've forgotten the, the, the name of the author. I'll send it to you. And where he talks about firefighters, smoke jumpers who get caught in a wildfire out west, right? Like they they're the people who jump behind lines, mm. and only a hand, and the, what happens is the fire flashes back and kills and it kills most of the crew, but not all of them. And he kind of goes through what was it that made the difference, right? And basically, some of these people in the supreme crisis understood that the right thing to do was to drop their tools and move, which is exactly the opposite of their training. Which is you know use your tools are what keep you alive. Mm. But the, you know, the most experienced, like their smoke drum, he was like, nope, time to, like, he, he saw something that no one else was like, nope, copy your tools, time to go. Like, we're out. We, that, that's the only way you survive in this environment. Um, and so that was great, this ability to sit, sort of look at the world, see these relatively subtle cues that no one else sees, mm. and then go, okay, it's time, right. Everything I've learned up to now doesn't apply in this new situation, in this crisis, and now I have to change course. That is, you know, that's definitionally wise, but it's very hard to do. And so the, let me repeat it for the, for, the, for, the, for the audience, the cognitive complexity piece, which is underpinned by adaptability, then the distance in the moment, um, which uh, again, what you're describing there is you almost need deliberate practice. You need a lot of practice to be able to do this. I, I think you're not, I don't think you're saying you're born with these no. gifts and tools. So there's one can cultivate these, of course. And the third area is uh, this whole area, vast area of um, wisdom, the attitude of wisdom, which, which, which is, again, very compelling. And so um, I'll pause for a second. I want to take you back to your books just yeah. for a moment, because um, there's no doubt, of course, you have, I think, the diversity of thoughts, the diversity of knowledge, the diversity of uh, friends, the diversity of colleagues. Um, I guess this is the sort of foundation block of why you are who you are, right? And I think what you're trying to say is when you're myopic or you're linear, you run the risk of perhaps not falling into the category of dealing with crisis well, because you have one way 
of getting to the destination. But all I will say to that is when I was growing up and you know, and you will, you will agree with this, I'm 42. When I was doing my MBA and I did spend time at Harvard and um, it was a phenomenal case study based learning there. Um, we were taught, you know, it was Napoleon Hill style, which is you conceive what you conceive, you believe you achieve right? Make it happen. And it's just one direction by hook or by crook, you're going to get to that end destination. Things have changed since then. We've evolved, thankfully, as people. And I think your three sort of learnings um, are going to be sort of um, uh, levers for, for the audience here to pick up on. Your first book, Indispensable, um, why did you write it? And where have you... Um, or how have you evolved or adapted yourself since then? So my first book was essentially, I wanted to, I was doing my PhD in political science and you know, there's sort of, there's sort of two ways to go about this, right? One is they, they, they say the classic answer is you take a hole in the literature and you fill it. That's one way. And the other, the deeply unwise way is to go off and answer some, try and try answer some huge question. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was talking with my, my advisor and I said, look, if, you know, if, if, if I, at the end of my dissertation, if I don't go be with a professor somewhere, I'll go back to McKinsey and no one here will feel sorry for me. Like, like no one's going to go, wow, that guy ruined his life. So, so let's take something, let's take on something big. And the biggest thing I could take on was this. I said that the question, the role of leaders in international relations was the most important question about which we understood the least because sort of the standard research on international relations all said that leaders didn't matter. Mm -hmm. And I would look at the world and say, that's obviously not true. And so what I started, the, the, what I started trying to answer, the question I started trying to answer was why do so many crazy people run countries? Like, why is it so often that you get people in charge of country, not in the, you know, wow, I don't like what this person does, but objectively, this person has profound psychological disorders and, you know, you should not allow them to run a, you should not allow them to run a, you know, a herd of sheep, much less a country. And yet it happens all the time. Yeah. The question I ended up answering, which the, you know, that crazy people want is just a subset of is when do individuals matter? Right, because what I understood, what I re finally realized, what I was really trying to understand is that there, the argument for why leaders don't matter had three parts. Mm -hmm. One was the idea that leaders are constrained, right? So there are external constraints on leaders. So if you run a company, you can't set your prices any at any level you want because you have competitors They'll undercut you if you raise them. Leaders have internal constraints, right? If you, run, you know, any organization has a budget and culture and politics, and so that means you don't, but that still leaves leaders plenty of discretion in lots of cases. And so the third argument, the argument that did most of the work was this idea that leaders are not chosen randomly. They're chosen by a process. And that process is looking at all of the candidates for leadership and evaluating them based on their pasts and trying to predict what they will do in the future. And then it's picking the person who will do what the process wants. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you, if you, and so what matters is not the person, it's the process. That was what the literature said when I came to it. And what I kind of thought was, you know, that's true, except when it isn't, right? Like if you're talking about McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or in the old days, General Electric or some one of these gigantic organizations that only hires from inside, then yeah, that totally makes sense, right? McKinsey knows every single thing there is to know about you before you become the managing partner. Like it is, you know, you, there's no one, no one on earth has ever been more thoroughly evaluated than a candidate for managing partner. Mm -hmm. Um but if you're an outsider or you inherit the job or something else happens and the system hasn't had a chance to properly evaluate you, then you could conceivably be very, very different from all of those people, from all the other people who might have got the job. And because you are different, you could do very different things, mm -hmm. right? And so what I would realize, what I was saying is, is this is a question is when is it that individuals matter? Well, the def my definition of an individual leader mattering is I say it's a counterfactual, right? It's if you replaced this person with the most likely alternative leader, how different would events have been? That's your measure of leader impact. Yeah. And then if, if, you, if the way you have an impact is you do something that other people in the same situation would not have done, then if you go to, what, like, what do we know about that kind of decision? And what I would say what corporate, what finance theory teaches us, right, is that decisions that other people would not make are very high variance. They're either brilliant or they're awful, but they're not boring, right? They mm -hmm. never end up in the middle. And so what I was really trying to understand is when is it that individual leaders matter? And as a subset of that, you get, you know, both the very best leaders and the very worst leaders. They're both cases. So, you know, my biggest surprising finding I would say is that the best leaders and the worst leaders have way more in common than either does with the people in the middle. Let's see. And, 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 what, and what, was, what was the commonality? Uh, so the commonality is they are what I call unfiltered, right? They're, they're the leaders who aren't evaluated by the system in this way. 
but that either they're unknowns or they're the only alternative or they inherit the job, right? There are any number of ways to get into this, be an become an unfiltered leader. But what they have in common is they are unfiltered. That the filtered leaders are the organization people, the people who do what the organization wants them to do. And that is not necessarily a criticism. Um, you know, the, 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 all, all life wisdom can be found in the Simpsons, right? And so Marge Simpson once said, that up. It is true that anybody can. It, it is true that anybody can make a difference, but they usually shouldn't, <laughs> right? Like, like the easiest way to make a difference is to fail, and so mm -hmm. the very worst leader, right? The, the the very worst leaders, the ones who do what no one else would do in those shoes. Well, there's a reason no one else would do it. It's because it's a bad idea, right? Mm -hmm. But every so often, a decision that no one else would make turns out to be genius, and it is prospectively impossible to differentiate between the ideas that, that that work out brilliantly and the ideas that work out to be disaster because if you knew in advance that this that you know that course x would be a huge success you wouldn't need steve jobs to do it you just do it yourself mm -hmm. right that that distinction is 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 one of the things i think the distinction that i sort of push that's hardest for people to, to for for especially executives who who are in the business of managing uncertainty right who want to be able to say well if i do a then that will lead to b is the future is vastly more uncertain than we understand than than we than we're willing to acknowledge and it is very very hard often to predict outcomes um, and so you know mike horowitz at upenn um, has as and the Good Judgment Project, which I'm sure you know, right? Like, so Mike, Mike is my friend, um, has demonstrated over and over again that we just don't know what's coming down the pipeline to a remarkable extent. And do we do we um, going back to the going back to the book and your learnings? Yeah. Um, you you mentioned that you're writing another book, picking presidents. Yes. So uh, and we'll, we'll discuss that in the context of the pandemic and, and uh, the whole sort of biosecurity area. What compelled you to write this book? And are you still research researching it or is it like in, in publication? It's, it's, no, it's, I, I finished writing it a while ago and now it's, uh, it's in the hands of my editor who should send me final edits. Um, you know, in the, Tim, if you're watching this any day now, um, and, um, uh, he's got a lot, he's got a lot of things to work on. So I understand. Um, so no, so what compelled it was pretty simple. So in my first book, Indispensable, uh, I've said that, look, you know, the best leaders and the worst leaders are both unfiltered, right? And so Tim, who was also my editor in my first book, said, well, okay, but it, what would you say differentiates the best and the worst leaders? Yeah. So the first and most important answer there is luck, right? Like, yeah. like luck matters. <clears throat> um, Hyman Rickover, the American admiral, once said that luck is more useful than skill. I can't use you if you're not lucky, right? So luck is incredibly important. And I always tell my students, right, there, there's a very easy way to diff to tell if someone's advice is worth taking right and when you're looking at a mentor do you want their advice or not and the answer the an the very easy way is do they say i was really lucky right are they self-aware enough to understand the role of luck in their successes mm -hmm. and if they're not don't take their advice they don't know what they're mm -hmm. talking about right like like luck matters yeah but is that is that time and place yes is that time and place? that's right yeah absolutely time and place right so um as an example right so i you know I ended up teaching at Harvard Business School, school coming out of grad school. I ended up there because one of my friends was working for Innosight, the company Clay Christensen founded, and introduced me to Clay, and then one thing led to another, right? But if my friend had been working for McKinsey, which he used to, right? If he just never left McKinsey, then I would never have met Clay, and there is zero – I would never even have applied to Harvard Business School, much less left there. So mm -hmm. that complete shift in my life – had a huge luck component, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, and that's, you just have to acknowledge luck. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, luck's not, luck's not the only thing. So what I said to him was, look, I, um, I, I can't tell you who will succeed with certainty, but I can tell you, this is my first book. I can tell you who are very, people who are very likely to fail. Mm -hmm. So I want to emphasize that the book was published in 2012, right? And was written in 2010 or 2011. So nothing of what I am about to say has any was pot could possibly have been impacted by American politics the last few years because it was all published long before anybody thought Donald Trump was going to be president of the United States. Right. But what I said in, is, well, look, there are basically four characteristics, each of which tell you that someone is likely to be, is very, very likely to fail. Mm -hmm. And what these four characteristics have in common is they're, they're what I call false signals, right? They, they make someone on superficial examination look really impressive, but yeah but they actually aren't. So they, they, they create false signals of competence. Mm -hmm. 
And so the four false signals I identified that I thought were very important in the, I mean, in particular in the first book is about half on the US presidency. So in the context of the US presidency, yeah. the four false signals I thought were really important were uh, psychological and personality disorders where the examples I used were, were psychopathy and narcissism, in particular mm -hmm. narcissism. Because the thing with narcissists is if you put a bunch of people in a room who don't know each other and ask them to vote for a leader, they will vote for the most narcissistic person in the group. Um, and, and by the way, this isn't just adults. This, we, was, I just a paper I, uh, I, I got from Adam Grant yesterday uh, mm. that said that, um, that this is true for elementary school kids. They'll vote for the most narcissistic elementary school student, right? And the reason is narcissists think they're awesome with such fervor that they tend to convince you they are too. Um, and so it takes a while to penetrate that narcissistic cloud and realize the person underneath. And in fact, narcissists make awful leaders, but on first impression, they seem like the sort of person you want to lead. Okay. So narcissism and psychopathy. Mm -hmm. and so the second characteristic was what I said was, um, was out of the mainstream ideologies. So to any complicated problem, there's an answer that is simple, obvious, and wrong. Um, and so if someone's telling you, look, I have an obvious answer to this pro set of problems and everyone who, everyone who hasn't used it already is dumb. Well, you know, every once in a blue moon, that's true, but it usually isn't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so out of the mainstream ideologies, this is a big one. So the third one I said was, uh, you had an extremely risk prone approach. So the reason here is, you know, when we look at the people who are like the finalists for CEO or for president. Right, we're only looking at the finalists. We forget there are a thousand other people who are trying for that job, or a million other people are trying for that job. Yeah. So, if there were, you know, if there were a thousand other people trying for that job, then someone who took three, right, three back to back, one out of ten gambles, one of those people is going to get, it, mm -hmm. right, one of those people is going to look like the genius who consistently succeeds on one out of ten tries. But actually, no, just someone had to be lucky, and they were the person who was lucky. Um, and so an extremely risk-prone style is something you want to be really careful of because you're only looking at the people who were, you're selecting on luck and you don't want people to rely on that going forward. Mm -hmm. And then the last one I said is, is, uh, is, is inherited, is, is sort of unearned advantages, by which I meant in particular, fan, unearned advantages, by which I particularly meant family wealth and, yeah. uh, and, and prominence, right? And the reason for that is because we, when we look at people, we always ask them, what did you learn from your experience? Yeah. Right, and that's really important, right? Like that, that, that is a conception of experience as a developmental process mm. where you undergo an experience and because of it, you learn things from that experience and you get better, right? Because of it, right? That experience, an experience is a developmental process, right? You should learn from your experience. Correct, yeah. But experience is also a revelatory process, right? We can watch you while you have those experiences and learn things about you. So mm -hmm. that's really right. That, that revelatory process is really, is just as important, might be more important than the developmental process. And so if you come from a really wealthy and powerful family, that's able to pull strings to get you like a really impressive job, right? And even if you succeed, it can pull strings to get you your next really impressive job. Then you can build, you, you, you obscure the revelatory part of the experience process, right? Like, like we, we are unable to learn things about you that we would have learned from someone else. So you can have a really impressive resume without having the achievements underlying it to back that up. Yeah. And so I wrote this book that published in 2012 that said, well, the, the people who are really likely to fail, in particular in the presidency, are total outsiders who, who are narcissists, risk takers, out of the mainstream ideology, and inherit a lot of money. <laughs> and so that happened. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah um, uh -oh. Let's just... The last few years were an uncomfortable experience for me. Um, and, um, and so that sort of logically said that the uh, next book would be saying, okay, not just, you know, not just taking that idea, but saying, okay, in the particular context of the presidency, can we create an objective framework that allows anyone, regardless of politics, to evaluate a presidential candidate just and ask the question, can this person do the job? Yeah. Right. Like, like that's what we want to know. Can this person do the job? Right. And, you know, even if I disagree with them, you know, like, like, so, like, even if so-and-so's politics do, 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 don't match mine at some basic level, you know, when the crisis happens, when COVID-19 goes wild, will this person be able to take the U.S. federal government, the world's most complicated bureaucracy, but one that has, you know, like essentially infinite powers yeah. and execute, right? And like, that's what I wanted to know. And that's what my second book is trying to answer that question, building on my research and that of other people and synthesizing it into this answer to this question. What's the book called? Have you got a title yet? Uh, that's, it's called Picking Presidents. 
That's picking presents. That's picking right. presents. Yeah, it'll come out in uh, University of California Press in early next year. <clears throat> We'd love to get a copy of that when it comes out, of course. Oh, absolutely. Um, thank you for that. that. That was fantastic. So you've 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 almost given us a bunch of different frameworks, and I won't repeat them all. And I, you know, this is transcripted and so on. So uh, very very powerful. Um, I want to get to the next point, which is uh, there's some questions that have come in, which I will touch on. So thank you for sending over the questions. If you do want to ask some questions, now is a good time. Uh, before we get to uh, quarter two and um, the last 15 minutes, we'll try and get those answered. So the next part of this really is um, something you shared with both Rick and I when we had our, our chat, which is around uh, very real, very current around the, the pandemic and so on. And I think you talked about this concept of biosecurity and you just explain what that is in a moment. And you led that, so we were having a really good conversation and we, we got onto this um, bit around this world we live in today where it's very difficult to be a leader because you're judged um, every millisecond. And while I'm, I'm not trying to create a, um, a soft landing pad for any leaders out there, including the country I come from, the United Kingdom, because um, that's again an interesting conversation, I do think there's a difference between politicians and leaders. Uh, you can be a fantastic politician, but it doesn't mean you're a great leader. And I'd love your commentary on that. Yeah. Um, talk us through this piece around uh, new information. That's the yeah. piece we want to get to, and we'll, we'll unpack that um, as we go through this conversation. So what do you mean by new information, and how does it sort of work to the models and the frameworks and the observations that you've, you've had over the last um, few years? All right. So, so the, bias, the, the pandemic obviously has been you know, something that we, it's, it shaped all of our lives. Uh, for me, it's sort of, a, again, a weird experience as uh, Af knows part of having the world's strangest resume is um, I, I was a biosecurity fellow, a Carnegie Endowment biosecurity fellow at the Institute for Global Conflict and Cooperation um, some years ago and have, you know, published, published peer-reviewed work on biosecurity, which is this concept of how do you protect, you know, how, how do you think through and protect against sort of threats from the natural world, whether artificial ones that are engineered by human beings or natural ones like COVID-19. Um, and so biosecurity, so, I mean, the intersection between of biosecurity and leadership is, was, you know, was sort of where I was living for a while. And suddenly, you know, the last few years happened, which has been something. Um, my, my, my editor sort of suggested that the, the title for the book too should be, it's not my fault or I won't, you know, things like something like that. Um, but, don't blame me. <laughs> yeah. Don't blame me. That was, that was also one of the suggestions. Yes. Um, um, and so this concept, the, the concept here is the, so Tony Cordesman had, you know, this wonderful article about biosecurity, um, which has one of the greatest titles in the history of political science. Um, biosecurity and the Buffy paradigm. So he was a he right. like me was a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and he said one of the problems with biosecurity, as as with the characters and that that the characters faced by the characters in Buffy, is that all inf information is uncertain, and mm. what information that you do have is like buried in archives of unknown reliability from arcane sources that don't necessarily you know communicate clearly. Mm. And so this, if if you watch the last you know the last year with COVID nineteen. One of the things you saw is this constant, you know, and this this is this constant sort of reevaluation as we learned new things about the disease, right? Yeah. So, for example, we what you know we were told clean everything, wash your hands, you know, do do the you know the surgeon's cleaning of your hands, and things like that. And it now seems pretty clear that the COVID nineteen does not transmit in any significant way by touch, right? Like I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm not saying don't wash your hands. But it's pretty clear that the level of focus we put on like disinfecting surfaces was disproportionate to the risk, to the risk, to the risk from that. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, the level of focus we put on air, on, on ventilation, right, on air supply and air quality was, was a vast underweighting compared to what we now know where the real risk seems to be from air, almost entirely airborne. So now in saying that, I am not criticizing the people who made those choices in March of 20, in March of 2020, right? There was no way to know, right? Like, like you know, were there people who got it right, that got that ratio right in March twenty twenty? Yeah, there were, but like that doesn't actually. Right? I mean, you got to remember, right? Luck counts. We, you know, right. at the time when when Tony Fauci was giving his advice in March twenty twenty, you know, there was really no way to know that, right? And it so happened that he got that that you know that so we 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 might have misallocated our risk budgets in that way, and so there's this concept in leadership, and we in fact hit on this earlier off, which is the idea that. You have to be constantly updating, 
in changing right. environments, right? Like that we're learning new things. And now in the modern environment, what the, I would say is this actually becomes much more so because all of our scientific tools and our networked communications means that the flow of information is vastly larger than it was before. And in and some parts of the quality is higher, right? So if, if, if COVID-19 had happened, ten, had happened 10 or 15 years ago, we might still not have the DNA sequence, or we might have, it might've taken us years, right? Like, like the human genome project was a, tw was a 20 year project. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, you know, now sequencing a virus is the work of an afternoon, essentially, right? So like we had the, so we had the DNA, we had the sequence right away. We can start to learn about it. We can start to do experiments, right? And there are lots of things we still don't know about COVID-19, but you know, like, like I, for example, would love to know what the, what the median infection, what the ID50 is, right? The median infectious dose, right? How many virions, how many viral particles do you have to inhale before we know what the infect? Before we know before you're, you're fifty percent of people are infected. Mm -hmm. In April or May, I was speculating that a lot of the weird stuff about COVID nineteen makes sense if the ID fifty is really high. So you have to inhale like thousands and thousands of viral particles of the stuff, and that explains you know why you would get why, why you get a heavily super spreading thing. So so one of the things that weird about COVID about uh, COVID, about COVID is it's it is enormously dependent on super spreader events. Right, mm -hmm. so the, the the median number of people someone who's infected with COVID will infect is zero. Right, right. so 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 even though the R is you know to, depending on circumstances two or three, the median number is zero. Right, mm -hmm. so it's basically this is a, a disease driven almost entirely by people who, by individuals who infect a large number of people, mm -hmm. and so and like that's not actually normal. That's that's a little weird. And so mm -hmm. what could explain that? So there are lots of things, so so we so there are lots of things we still don't know about COVID nineteen. But, um, but, but we know a lot, right? We know a lot more than we used to. And we were able to learn that in months, what would previously have taken years or even decades. Sure. And so yeah. if you are a leader in that environment, you need to be constantly updating the course action you take as this new information comes in. And you need to be constantly right, revising your priors and saying, okay, how do we do this? But that one is first is in a political environment that can be very difficult, right? Because you see in the United States, you see people, uh, you see, um, you know, so, so people will criticize uh, Ted Cruz, you know, launched a bunch of attacks on Tony Fauci for like saying masks aren't that important in March and saying they're important now. I'm like, yeah, because we know stuff now that we didn't know in March. Like that's how science works, right? right? If he was saying the same things now he was saying in March, that would be a huge problem, right? That would be a sign that he's a bad leader as opposed to an incredibly good one because mm -hmm. he isn't updating. But the second part of that is precisely because we have this constant flow of new information coming in leaders need to take the time, right? I mean, everything that everything about the world has gotten faster except our own brains. Right. So, so leaders need to be able to take the time to think and update as they get this new information. As before, right? Like, like when decision cycles were so slow, when, when information content flowing in was much lower and decision cycles were much slower, you know, you could essentially afford to go for very long periods of time without rethinking because it was very unlikely that you were going to be, you were, you were going to have been the recipient of new information that caused right. you to rethink. Um, no. To go back to the Duke of Wellington, right? He, he, he said that the, the, the art of generalship is, see, is understanding what's on the other side of the hill, right? It's mm -hmm. seeing what's on the other side of the hill. Like what you can't see, but putting the pieces of information together that allow mm -hmm. you to deduce what's there and do that, right? And the reason he was you know, essentially undefeated in his entire career is because he was better at that than anyone else. But mm -hmm. most of the time, you, you know, you weren't, you know, his information was conveyed, new information was conveyed to him by guys on horses, yeah, yeah. right? That isn't, that isn't internet. So yeah. <laughs> what, what, what we, I would hope that we sort of, both as leaders and as followers of other leaders are able to do is essentially cultivate what I would say is, is, is essentially short-term patience, is both accept that some of the things that we're going to learn in these rapidly, envir rapidly changing environments are wrong, and some of the things that people advise us to do will be wrong, and so we mm. should be patient with the fact that they are learning too. But mm. the second is patience is science of give people time to figure out what things mean. So yeah. you've heard me say this before, Af, but I'll say that but I will be incredibly impressed when uh, at you know, when the press secretary for the White House, you know, is taking conference questions and a reporter asks him or her, you know, what does the president think about this thing that happened an hour ago, right? And the response is the president's thinking about it, right? I will, like, I, I will just be walking on air that day because I think that's the right answer. Right? The right answer is sometimes it takes you a little while to figure things out and we should take that time instead of shooting from the hip. Mm. And that ability to have to, again, to go back to where we were at the beginning, distance, right? Like distance means, means you're slowing your reaction time a little bit, right? Um, 
yeah. one of the things that people right that people say mm. in the military is uh, successful successful plans are slow 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 then fast 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 right mm. you're slow until you need to act quickly because that slowness is very important it's how you make good plans it's how you incorporate new information right up until the moment when you need to act quickly and we've mm. forgotten that slow 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 part of the equation isn't this isn't this going back to um, many many years ago generations ago where I think we operated in this way to some extent because it felt like we had all the time. Admittedly, we didn't have a nonstop flow of information, uh, which is highly complex. But going back to your earlier point around cognitive complexity, maybe training ourselves to deal with vast amounts of information, data and information, given that is going to be the new normal in life now, uh, is going to be a skill that we'll need to build on, right? We don't all have it. We, but some of us get blusters, of course, when there is so much information coming in. Uh, it's, got to, it's part of the default existence now. The, the other thing is, um, I just want to go back to being judgmental. So are you, are you saying, I'm trying to be a little bit compassionate here for, for leaders. Are you saying when the wrong messages are sent out or um, a leader or a politician says, it's going to happen on a Thursday, but on Wednesday, he or she says, it's not going to happen on a Thursday. Um, do we cut leaders some slack um, because they're trying to figure it out too? Is that what you're saying? So I would say yes with a caveat. And the question is, why were they wrong? Mm. Right? Like, like, were they wrong because they learned new things? And, you know, that just, so we just saw, for example, that, uh, that the United States, had early, that President Biden said that earlier he expected it to essentially be the vaccine to be available to all Americans by, by May. And now he's pushed back to July. And why is that? Well, it turns out that vaccine production schedules are a little slower than we thought they would be a couple of weeks ago. And so he said, as soon as he learned that, he came out and said, I'm like, I'm not, cool. I mean, like, I would love to have the vaccine in May, but that is not within the president's control, mm -hmm. right? Like, like, like factories are factories and maybe he'll, and maybe they will beat that schedule. They've beaten a lot of schedules so far, right? That's a big difference from lying because you're saying it early because you want the short-term sugar high of an election, uh, 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 of a headline. Right. Those two distinct, the, the distinction as to why we're updating is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And so that's the one thing I say is, is I do think we should, I, I do think we should have more, um, one thing, you know, as a, as an academic or former academic, depending on the day of the week, I guess. Um, I always say that, that like, like you should appreciate how hard it is to be a practitioner, mm -hmm. right? Like, like it is just, you know, um, the moment I'll never forget is back when I was my first time at the Kennedy school, when I was junior staff, um, a very senior state department official came and spoke to us, um, and I'm not going to, it's not, I won't use, use his name. It's not, but the quote is so perfect that I'm allowed, he allowed me to, to repeat it. Or what he said was, you guys, you know, you professors speaking to my, you know, my boss, he said, you professors, like you guys always say, this should be on your front burner and this should be on your back burner. And that's how you should think about the world. He mm. says, every time you say that, I know you've never had my job. Right. Yeah. Because I come in every day and my desk is on fire. Like that's what I deal with. And, and, and I was like, you know, that it was, just, it was just this moment of, oh, Okay, I need to re I need to recount re 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 rethink my my view of what these guys' jobs really like. That was incredibly powerful, uh, when, especially when you're 22. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think um, that's that's you know uh, what you're sharing there in terms of short term patience and um, just the, the the high levels of complexity one is facing with all of this information. I th I think what I'm taking away from this is um, we need we need to be a little bit patient ourselves as. Uh, the electorate or citizens, because what we're dealing with here is is highly complex and highly uncertain. And frankly, accepting that a lot of people don't know what's going to happen next is also reality. It, it's just part of where we are. Um, so it's just off. I just say like patient yeah. with learning and impatient with deception, right? We should patient be learning impatient with deception, right? We should be incredibly patient with people who are who are who are right who are updating and getting better. <laughs> Yeah. But where we should have no patience at all is with people who are right, like, 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 like we are far too patient with leaders who lie to us and far not, and not nearly patient enough with people who are, with, with, with leaders who are learning. That's yeah. the distinction I would make. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a, it's a good way of segmenting it. Um, we have a bunch of questions that have come in as well, Gotham. We can, we can talk for ages, but let me ask you this question. And then there's a bit on tools and frameworks that I'd love you to touch on. I know you've sure. alluded to it already. The questions come through, a couple of questions through Facebook. Um, the first one I'll try and read. So um, what do you say, Gotham, to a younger person, like an emerging leader or a rising star, who has the qualities of a great leader versus impatient and doesn't value the experience that time and trials bring? Question mark. Yeah. Um, that's the first part of the question. 
Second part of the same question is, uh, or statement is, is it, is it your opinion that they can ever be a successful leader without gaining the kind of experiential wisdom? Um, does that make sense? It yeah. does, yeah. And the answer is yes, they can be, but it's incredibly hard. Right. So this is the, this is the same thing. Like, you know, people say, do you want to be a high impact leader? How do I be I, executives? When I work with executives, we'll always say, how can I be a high impact leader? Right. And my answer is, are you sure you want to be the easiest way to be a high impact leader is to fail. Right. right. Um, and so, so it is possible to be one of those people who through, you know, some combination of luck and skill is right you know, right off the bat, right off the bat without that experiential, without that sort of experiential wisdom, but it's really hard and it's really rare. And I wouldn't count on it. Right. Like, like if you are one of these people, you learn a lot, you know, you develop a lot from experience. Also, like, I mean, it, I, I, so I was recommend if you want to get good at understanding people, be a teacher. Mm. Right. I had a thousand, I had a, I, 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 while I was at Harvard Business School, at, at HBS, and then, you know, you know, roughly across the course of the first few years of my career, I had roughly a thousand students, mm-hmm. right? And the, the reps you get where the last, you know, the last couple of times where you start to recognize, you start to see the types, right? You start to understand people in a way that you never did before. Like that's, you can only get that from experience, right? So, so my last couple of years, I used to tease my students because I could tell who was dating who, mm-hmm. right? And without, with no, no knowledge of their personal life whatsoever, I could just be like, yeah. And one of them said to me, like, how, how do you know? And I was like, because I've because I've because I've seen a thousand of you, and guess what? After a while, you start to recognize the patterns that I could never have seen before. That yeah, yeah. so um, so that kind of thing matters, right? So experience that that sort of the, the 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 knowledge of and understanding of people and context and situations that you get from experience is incredibly valuable and will improve your odds. That doesn't mean that you should that it's the only thing you should have, and it doesn't mean you should get stale, right? It is possible to have too much experience. Mm-hmm. If you spend 20 years, you know, do that, you, you, what you will become is a creature of the system. Yes. And sometimes the, that's, not what the, that's not what the system needs. Yeah, 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 bang on. I, I think that's a fantastic answer. And, and so in other words, you, you know, if you have great leadership potential and you're young and you don't have the experience, that, that's just fine. But, you know, horses for courses, you know, um, yeah. one, it's not always a causation related conversation. I mean, it can be, you can be an outlier. Um, but we find with, the, with sometimes people um, call the, the younger generation, the snowflake generation or whatever it may be, but their, their level of uh, resilience in dealing with, uh, well, firstly, patience, you know, is one thing, but the, the resilience and the ability to fail uh, is being debated right now. It's hard, it's hard to know. I mean, I certainly have a little daughter and I can tell you the level of patience for anything, uh, including consuming content is like off the charts. She's running on blockchain and I'm like on Windows or something. So but time will tell how that how that generation works. The next question really is, again, from Facebook. Uh, so again, for you, Gotham, this sense of team replacing the function of the leader, um, in brackets, the team is the new leader, in, in essence, is becoming more common. So this is like the collective consensus and so on. Uh, do, do your leadership um, principles apply here? And are there simple ways that this type of team can become more effective in a crisis situation? There are. And so the first one is this idea of the team replacing the leaders, I think profoundly powerful and important. If there's one thing that the research on teams teaches us, that, you know, my takeaway from it, yeah. when I, and I, and I mean, and I, I will say like, I, I was not a team's researcher, but my colleague, Jeff Pulser was, you know, was, was one of the best. And this is what I learned from him yeah. is um, hierarchy is bad. Right, like like the more hierarchic teams are, the worse they do. Mm-hmm. Um, Amy Edmondson, the you know the sort of extraordinary uh, you know, professor at Harvard Business School, sort of you know gen- genuinely a genius, she created this concept of psychological safety. Right, where she said teams perform well when people feel psychologically safe that they're able to sort of disagree with other people without being punished for it. Yeah. Um, and so, what we see with teams is the more hierarchic they become, the worse they become at information processing. The, word, the less able they are to convey and to, to, to sort of work together by which means like pooling all the things they know and all the skills they know and all the insights they know to come to the right answer. Mm-hmm. And teams that are not hierarchic, that don't, in fact, often teams that don't have a designated leader, but, it's, but certainly teams 
who have a culture where you can speak up and speak freely are unbelievably good at that, right? And if a big component of crisis management, of leadership leading in a crisis is, again, handling complex and large amounts of complex information and uncertainty in short periods of time, team, you know, non-hierarchy teams are really, really good at that, whereas hierarchic teams can actually be quite bad at it. Um, so that, so I absolutely agree with that. But the second part is, um, so in, in my, in the second podcast, we heard one of my, uh, another one of my former students, uh, Danny Glenn was a Navy special operations guy. And he said that one of the things about his special operations teams, he, um, if you saw the hurt locker, that was, Dan, yeah. he actually was a bomb disposal guy. That's right. what he did. Right. right. And, um, and he said that what the special operations teams, he said that the characters is they're like origami, which I'd never heard before. I thought it was a wonderful metaphor. Uh, and he said, what it is, is that special operations units, and you see this across militaries, like the more elite, uh, you know, special operations teams tend to be extraordinarily non-hierarchic, right? So they they very, um, they tend to be, you know, like, so as you said, when he was on deployment, he said his team would, he, he, he was an officer and they were enlisted, his team would be on a first name basis with them. They call him Danny, not Lieutenant, mm-hmm. right? So you would never see that in like the normal military, but for these guys, that was just, that was just normal. That was the way it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says, when you were under extreme time pressure and had a decision to be, and, and so they were as flat as it's possible for a team to be, but yeah. when you were under extreme time pressure and, and, and a decision had to be made, and there simply wasn't time for a consensus or for that sort, right? Then the team, as I said, the team would fold into one that had a hierarchy where he would make that call. Right. And right. so that, that concept of origami is so beautiful. I'm like, I'm still thinking about it and what I'm going to, what I, what I'm going to do about it because it strikes me as being profoundly yeah. important, but it's all, it is demanding on the leader, right? Because it says that it for for the person to be able to to you know to fold into a hierarchy at, at the key point in time, the formal authority has to exist, right. which means that yeah. he has to he or she has to not essentially not use it for long yeah. periods of time to allow the team to operate collaboratively while still maintaining it when it needs to be exercised. And that's yeah. quite a trend. There's, there's an awesome science to that. I mean, that's that's yeah. that's that's very tough. Um, thank you for that. I know we're coming. We're almost past the hour now. Final question, if you can answer it in like 30 seconds. Uh, what would be your advice, Gotham, to leaders uh, looking to hone their skills in processing complexities? Uh, probably a big question, but is there anything you can throw in there very quickly? Read, right? So, so deep thinking. Um, so Harry Truman said, not all readers are leaders, but, uh, no, but all leaders are readers, right? Mm-hmm. So re- re- don't just read, but read good books, right? Like read stuff that challenges you, that, ex- that stretches you. It could be fiction. Um, so, uh, one of my best friends is a, is a novelist named Guy Gabriel K, K-A-Y. Um, he got to start with the Silmar, uh, working on the Silmarillion and has written, you know, multiple, I would say that like, I learn more about people and leadership from reading Guy's novels, right? As, as a, a genuine literary genius, sort of thinking through and helping you understand people, uh, than I do from a lot of scholarly work that I read, but, you know, but read, read nonfiction, right? Read, um, read Steve Pinker's How the Mind Works and get a sense of how that, uh, you know, how, how brains stretch. Read, um, you know, what, what, like, like just, just what have I been reading in the last few weeks, right? Um, uh, so so uh, d- uh, we, you mentioned general, uh, I wanted to mention earlier, uh, David Epstein wrote a fantastic book called Range about, uh, about generalists and how generalists outperform specialists because of this ability to adapt and go from different one thing to another. So mm-hmm. if, if I would give one advice to that, it's, you know, you get good at handling complexities by thinking complexly, right? By doing it all the time. And the, you know, one of the easiest way to do that is people, people pour their life's blood into creating these books that are designed to create, to, to convey complex ideas to you. It's, it, it, and, and they're pretty cheap on Amazon. So. Fabulous. What a fantastic way of closing off. We had a, we had a wonderful show. We can talk for hours, of course, about just about everything. Uh, Gotham, thank you for coming on the show. It was a, a real pleasure, privilege to have you on the show. We would at some point love to have you back. And especially when you launch or release the next book, Speaking Presidents. Um, we'd like to love to sort of unpack that in more detail. Um, is there anything you'd like to say before we close up in terms of how can we reach you? Where are you? Um, you know, have you got a website and so on and so forth? But you're gonna you're going to be on our, we're going to put up all of the details related to your background on our website under the speakers page. So for the for the audience out there, you can absolutely tap into that. But a, a little bit before you close off, and then I'll introduce the speaker for next week as well. Oh, thanks, Ab. So uh, I'm at Gmukunda, G-M-U-K-U-N-D-A, on Twitter and Instagram, I guess, although, you know, that, that's mainly dog photos. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my website, gothamukunda.com, goes live in the next few days. We're working on that right now. Uh, but, uh, but Twitter is the first thing. And the second, maybe the most important, is the podcast is uh, called World Reimagined. You can find it on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify or anything you can name. 
And uh, if you liked this, I think that that will give you, you know, you, you will get more of that. And from some, from I, I honestly say some genuinely remarkable people who I think, I think you'll be fascinated to hear from. Fabulous. Amazing having you on the show. Um, thank you very much, Gotham. And just before we close off, I uh, just wanted to give you a sense of what's happening uh, next week. So uh, Rick uh, is back from his retreat and we'll see what he's been up to. And we have, once again, actually, we, we get a lot of repeat guests on the show who um, grace us with their company and, and excited about um, the discussions we have. So Darcy Winslow, who's a former um, GM and board member of Nike, in fact, she built the, the, the women's apparel business there many years back, who's now the president of the Academy for Systems Change. She's doing some incredible work around sustainability, climate change, and of course, diversity. She's going to join us next week and she's going to talk about the secret ingredients to bridging the three divides. I won't tell you what they are today, but she's a wonderful lady, um, very involved, a lot of wisdom, of course, and a lot of lived experiences. So looking forward to that show. And once again, thank you, audience, guests, and trade talkers for joining in again. And Gotham, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Af. Thank you, audience. Wonderful. Cheers. Have a good day. Bye.